Pelotero Pickle episode 39. We got a blockbuster episode with Mike Bryant, father of Chris Bryant, joining us. We hit some uh, quick topics with the Mets fighting, uh, Albert Pujols getting DFA'd, and then we just jump into some deep hitting topics. You're going to love this one. Check it out. Pelotero Pickle, episode 39. We've got a special guest with us today. We've got Chris Colabello. Let's bring Mike Bryan in. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. Can't be better. Thanks for joining us. Um, Mike and I met, I think, in 2015, 2016 at Pitchapalooza. I've kept in touch since. And then, uh, yeah, he's got a whole bunch of hitting knowledge. We're going to do our some normal topics. We'll talk a little bit about some adjustments that have been having been made with Chris. Uh, and then obviously Chris called Bell. Chris, how are you doing today? I need to clarify one thing. First of all, your introduction, you were nervous because I mean, you forgot to mention he's the father of Chris Bryant. Now, Mike, I have a question. Yeah, I was Mike. downplaying that a little bit. He's no, no, no. Man. I have a, I have a serious question. Cause like for a long time, like growing up in my hometown, like I was Lou Calabello's son. And then at some point that transition happened where he became Chris Colabello's dad, if you know what I mean. Like how yeah. what is are you is he still is he still Mike Bryant's son or are you Chris Bryant's dad? Which one is it? No, I, I was never I never had a first name for the last seven years. So I'm <laughs> a, you know, I I'm I'm KB's dad. When I tried to change it, I became K D, Chris's dad. Okay. So but I'm, I'm starting to regain my identity. You know, I had a, had, had a kind of a midlife crisis there for a while. <laughs> See, I was just giving, I was just letting him be his own, his own guy. There's nothing wrong with that. That wasn't nerves. Uh, so let's get right into the topics. we got two quick leadoff topics today. Topic number one is team fights. We had a situation in, in uh, New York with the Mets where Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil got in a little scuffle in the dugout, behind the dugout. And then afterwards, when it came to the, the press conference, Lindor said they were they couldn't figure out if it was a rat or a raccoon. They were, you know, something that there's an animal back there they had to deal with. So obviously that was just their way of trying to keep it in-house that, you know, they didn't want to draw media attention to the fact that they fought. I think this is going to be the rallying cry for the Mets as the season goes on. I'm sure they're making shirts. Uh, Mike, I'll throw it to you. Any, uh, what are your thoughts on adversity and bringing a team together? You know, obviously, adversity is a tremendous opportunity for you to just to find out how mentally tough you are, because everybody knows that plays this game that this thing will bring you to your knees, it'll get you pissed off, it'll, 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 it'll make you do things that that you regret, and you know, it's just so you can understand, uh, you know, how emotions can fly in the game. Nobody, you know, try going over thirty three or six for forty nine, and and uh, see what that see what that does to your uh, to your head and so to turn that around you know obviously Chris leans on me for support and he's no stranger to it and uh you know even when he was healthy he's had issues you know with with you know a, a terrible run going you know maybe I think his worst was like a four for 36 one time and he always you always uh you know the adversity thing you always try to to, to learn from it and say, Hey, you're not the only one. You're not alone, man. You know, look at, you know, he's like, well, who else is going bad? And I'll go do research. And I'll say, yeah, you know, this guy, you know, this guy's six for 49. Jeter was one for 41 one time, you know, and this, so it kind of calms him down a little bit. So I think it's necessary personally. I think you have to go through it in order to, you know, it's kind of a rite of passage, you know, to be able to play in the big leagues, you know, you're going to get your ass handed to you 
you know, by the pitchers. And um, it's just the way it is, man. The, the, you, you're, you're constantly under attack. The minute you step in the box, you're under attack. I say all the time, it's a battle of attrition, right? Baseball is a battle of attrition. It's about survival. Um, and especially, you know, the Mets had big expectations this year. Obviously, Lindor with a big contract. Uh, they brought in some other guys that they thought were going to make an impact. New owner. And you start out, you're scuffling, and it could be just like one weird little moment that sets you off. And the play in question, I think, that really ended up being the icing on the cake was like a ball. And it was just a weird ball, like kind of up the middle. McNeil pulled up. Lindor, I guess, probably called it. And the guy ended up being safe. So I'm sure McNeil had some words of choice. And uh, Francisco is like Chris, like just the most handsome devils ever. I don't like I could (laughs) never get an argument with Chris because like, I mean, his like I, the first time I met him, I was like, Oh my God, like what? A, and he's just such a sweet kid. Lindor's kind of the same, like just got that big smile. So I don't know. I, McNeil must've had some, some edge, you know, he was a tough guy, but you, like you said, it's stuff that needs to happen. And Bobby, to your point, I think it'll probably be something that, that, you know, either they rally around it or it divides them. So uh, I, I think it'd be more fun for baseball if it's rally around it. So. Yeah. It's funny how the situation will come up where there's bottle up tension you get that boil over moment and it can really bring a team together. I really, I think they're going to be talking about rats and raccoons all year in, uh, in Queens for the Mets. I, it's just, <laughs> I, I think it's one of those moments that they're all just going to rally around it. My question is how long did it take them to come up with that? Did Frankie do it on his own? Did somebody else give him the idea. That's the question I have. Not like, I, I want to know how long it took them to fashion that in their minds. Cause you know, I love nice. it. It's appropriate too. Cause if you've ever been to New York, some of those rats could be raccoons are so big. Yeah. They're like dogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mike, you have any, any stories, any teams in the past where there's been some conflict guys? I, yeah. My best friend I, and I, I mean, a really good friend of mine, he played for the Rangers and the Red Sox uh, minor leagues and lefty high school buddy moved from California, hit it off right away. I was a sophomore. He was a freshman. We were friends forever, you know, and we were in summer league college summer league. And, uh, we drove down to uh, Waterbury, you know, the Eastern League fields down there. Waterbury Connect used to be the Giants. We had our Stan Usual Summer League playoffs down there. And uh, Schmitty was on edge. He just got uh, he just got shelled and thought he, you know, ruined our chances. And, you know, he wanted to go to McDonald's or something. And, you know, it, it was my car. You know, I had my car. And, and he was like, I said, no, man, I, we need to go to the field. You know, we got to get ready for this game. I said, we don't have time to eat, you know. And he's like, I'm starved, man. He says, you know, I'm not pitching this game. I, I said, dude, we got to go to the park. And he got pissed off and he freaking sucker punched me. I mean, upside the head. I mean, he hit me pretty hard. And, uh, you know, I had a headache for like a month after that. And, but I, I looked at him and, you know, I grabbed his throat and, and I just kind of realized what I was doing. And we just kind of walked away from each other. I flipped him the keys. I said, here, you go eat. I'll walk to the field. And I was like a mile away, you know, at the hotel and, and uh, so he just, he left, he came back, we're sitting on the bench, it's five to five, it's at the bottom of the eighth inning, and, and I hit a solo jack to tie it up, and uh, geez, and everybody knew that, that you know, he whacked me, and he's, hey, maybe Schmitty ought to, you know, whack you in the head more often, <laughs> you know, and, and he just laughed, and he comes over, he gives me a big hug, and he just said, hey, I'm so sorry, man, and I said, hey, we're friends, man, we get it, we're brothers, you know, we, we moved on, and, you know, that was about the most confrontational thing I had. Happened in basketball too in high school. One of my best friends called off and belted me because I was, you know, he was just elbowing me way too much, and, you know, in the scrimmage. And I'm like, you know, so I just turned around and belted him, and he turned around and belted me. And, we, and I got sent down to the locker room. 
<laughs> he's, he's up there still. The instigator never gets in trouble, you know. Yeah, he, and, the, and the coach was a dick. I should have punched the coach. <laughs> At any rate, so that was my that's my story. That's the only one, you know. Yeah, pretty. Much. I always feel like the the weight room, the weight room does such a good job creating team chemistry when guys are pushing each other, and you can look across yeah. the room and see somebody going through some pain, going through some, you know, really yeah. pushing themselves. I think the weight room does a really good job of that. If the culture is right, if guys are just going through the motions and then it goes the opposite way, you you don't respect that guy. Pick a guy to run with, pick a guy to work out with, you know, that's key. Very good. All right. Next topic, bat flips, all the rage (laughs) on Twitter right now. People are freaking out about bat flips. Um, This has been brewing for a while. There was a a college player at NAI school. I'm not even going to say the name. Everybody knows who it is. Overhand through the bat. they came back from an eight-run deficit. It's like the final game of the kid's career. Emotions are out. Uh, but I think this is the the draw the line in the sand moment for bat flips because everybody's got an opinion on it. We got major leaguers weighing in. Um, for me, I'm I'm starting a new thing. I think I'm calling it natural actions. If it's a natural action, so if you're in the act of putting the bat down, in the act of going towards first base, everything's fine. So you can do like pull the sheet, pull the sword out. You can let it go like they do in Korea where they fling the bat sideways because it's part of the, the unwinding of the swing. Anything where you're launching the bat vertical or throwing it overhand or anytime you just stand there and watch it, to me, you're you're going to bring out some emotion to the other team. Uh, let's go Chris first. We've had many talks about bat flips. Are you on board with my natural actions movement? Sure. I just think I think you should just be allowed to get hit in the ribs every time you do something that crosses the line. That's it. I, that, that, and I think this is the, the fundamental truth of it all is that as of like 25 years ago, or even like probably 15 years ago, if somebody did that, what that kid did, like he would have got chased around the bases and probably tackled and everybody would have been like, I get it, you know, or he would have got dotted or the next guy would have got dotted. Now everybody's like off that idea. So the reason why it's getting out of control is because there's no, there's no accountability and everybody's just trying to one-up each other, right? Like every bat flip is turning into a one-up. It's like, let me see how obnoxious I can be because I can get on Instagram, whether I'm at, you know, little league field B or NAIA school or, you know, whatever. Everybody thinks that they can garner attention that way. And it's tired because like you should let the way you play talk. If the moment calls for something emotional, like, you can get a little bit emotional, but like, I think it's so much cooler to do something understated. Like Lance Berkman's thing was my favorite thing ever. Like that dude would just like put the bat down. Both yeah. Hands. Just bend over and put yes. it up. Yeah. That was so much cooler. I feel like, I feel like we're going to see that out of Chris at, at one point. Cause he's pretty understated, like home run guy. Like you don't, yeah. you don't feel the need to flip the bat. Let's just play talk. Right. Right. Exactly. Hey, I, I, as, like I said before, I'm from the Cal Ripken, Carl Yastrzemski school, Hank Aaron, you know, I'm an old school guy with that. You know, you hit your home run, you handshake it with the third base guy. You go to the plate, you handshake it. No hugs, no kisses, no, no, you know, spoon-fed things, stirred up stuff. I don't, you know, I'm not into that. It's just, it just brings too much attention to you. Now, I've been hit before by a 98 mile an hour fastball, and it doesn't feel good. And you know, it scared the crap out of me because it was up high near my, you know, near my neck. It's me and the, and it was an accidental. He didn't do it on purpose, and, but. Uh, you know, no way. I just forget the back flips. I don't know. Just, the, you know, the pitcher's got the ball, man. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> you know, that's the thing that people forget, right? Like, they, so everybody, everybody that's saying, oh, we really enjoy bat flips and we really enjoy the emotion of it. Like, that's cool, right? But like, I also don't think people understand 
that in the heat of the moment, right, when you're when you're competing at the highest level, and even if it's the big leagues or college, when you're like, you know, you got the light switch flipped on, you have no idea how the player on the other side is going to react. So right. because you draw that attention to yourself, you're ultimately putting yourself in a position where, you know, if you catch that guy in the wrong moment, like those are fighting words. You know what yeah, I mean? It's his turn. Yeah. Everybody says, oh, you shouldn't take it personal or whatever. Okay, well, you go out there and see what happens when you're working at 150% adrenaline. You know what I mean? Right. Yep. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and it goes both ways, too. You know, the, the Trevor Bauer act is uh, getting a little old, you know, uh, you know, the, the Hulk moves and the hoo And he, he struck Chris out the other day at the bases juice, you know, you know, looking and, and he just screamed. And then I'm like, dude, come on, man. Act like you've done it before. You know, for crying out loud, it's like it's no big deal. You know, be Adam Wainwright. You know, the guy's a class act, even though he's a cardinal. He'll strike you out and he's not going to say anything. You know, and so, yeah, no more bat flips. And, you know, at some point, you know, that that Jose Batista one man when he was chewing his cud like a cow there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I, then, oh, that's that, that wasn't right. And what was it? Uh, Odor. <laughs> he, yeah. he took. Knocked his, yeah. Well, I, you know. So I, the the Jose one was like Chris, I, I was Chris playing first base in that game. I was so. sitting there, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting there, and I I literally made it a point, like as the ball was going out, to turn and look at him. And I understood it, right? Like that was as energetic. Like I was, I played nine innings that day. Every pitch, we were like locked in emotionally. I know Chris played some big games. I'm sure you have too, Mike. Like Bobby, biggest game you ever played in conference tournament, conference championship probably like but you feel there's just a different level of intensity right and then if it's close right. late close right look the, the batista one it was what it was but that was i'm gonna call him today and blame him for this whole bat flip generation yeah <laughs> it was something else man um yeah. you know it, and that and that game the build up to that moment was crazy because it was you know the errors that were happening that the, the yeah. throw from the catcher that hit the bat there were i mean that game was wild and I'm still upset because I want to play the Cubs in the World Series. So we both did a bad job of losing <laughs> the Mets into the Royals. So I hadn't played at Wrigley yet either, which was upsetting. Yeah. Daniel Murphy had like 900 homers against against the. Against he was the impossible to get out. It was he unbelievable. I never seen anything like it. I, I never either. He was hitting pitches off his shoelaces into the second deck. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like you got to be kidding me. What's going on here? Everywhere you looked, he was hitting the dinger. I felt I would have felt bad for Rizzo because I mean Chris too, but we would have beat him in the World Series. I mean I, I can say that out loud with full conviction now because it's never going to happen. That we're never gonna fight, but I know we would have beat him. So, yeah, it was that was an unbelievable run for me, man. I went to every game and flew on the team plane on the way home, and I was like, whoa, you know, this was emotionally draining. Bobby would have enjoyed it way better if it was Cubs Blue Jays, I think. Yeah, he's a he's a Toronto guy. He's a Canadian, isn't he? No. No, not, so the, 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 when the Jose Bautista Batflip game, I was packing for my wedding. I got married that weekend and Chris was supposed to be in my wedding. So he, he missed my wedding because Jose hit that homer. So oh, yeah. uh, yeah. it, was, it was the least I've ever wanted to go to one of my friend's weddings. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I didn't want you there either. So uh, yeah. mutual. I get that. Yeah, I get it. So, all right. It, Next kind of a sad topic for me. Uh, Albert Pujols, DFA'd. Kind yeah, of weird, that? kind of crazy to see a name like that. Um, his no performance respect. hasn't been great. So, yeah, what I think from a just a logistical standpoint, the Walsh kid's pretty good. He's probably going to play better than Albert. 
I want to hear from you guys about the role of that kind of veteran leadership in the clubhouse and what that means to a team as opposed to just the numbers when he's batting. Um, sad for me, Pulse was like the guy that changed my life when it comes to swing mechanics. So just sad to see that happen. I was pretty shocked. But what do you guys got on uh, on just clubhouse presence? And like Mike, you said, the respect for that that type of player. A cornerstone of the game. Oh, yeah. Come on with that. You know, and, and you know, I don't know where it came from. Did it come from Madden? Did it come from, you know, the, so the story uh, behind it was he was uh, he, he wasn't in the starting lineup and went to talk to the manager about playing time. And he wants to be an everyday player. And it, right. was, basically, it was basically decided that he was not going to be an everyday player. Uh, Otani is going to get all the DHF bats because he's I mean, he's a stud. Yep. So it was just determined that he wasn't going to be an everyday player and it was better to go different ways. Bear in mind, that lineup was written by the front office, by the way. That was yes. not Adam's call to not play on Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I see Joe was, uh, would fight would fight that, you know, knowing Joe that, you know, he, you know, he has a ton of respect for, for the players in the game. And I just can't imagine him, you know, doing that. I think, uh, you know, that had to come from the front office. But the other thing, too, you know, that you have to take into consideration is, you know, you kind of know when to say when, too. I mean, Albert, you know, he had one year left on his contract, and he's got a personal services contract. Maybe he he just – his skills were diminishing to a point where, he, you know, this was inevitable. And uh, so maybe he should, you know, say, hey, man, I should have retired last year. You know, some guys do that, and they, they don't – you know, you don't want to go out, you know, that way you know, hitting 190 with four home runs. And, you know, you want to go out, if you can, with, you know, hitting 280 with, you know, 23 homers and 90 ribbies, you know. You want to go out like that. But maybe he was looking at the numbers and, yeah, I can do this. You know, you, your, mind, your mind says yes, your body says no. And so, you know, that's always something that that subject has to be breached at some point. And that's an individual thing. You got to look yourself in the mirror and say, I can't play this game at this level with these young kids. And then go out. You know, or know that this inevitably could happen and that your role may be reduced to being, you know, that leader getting in there, pinch hitting, winning a big game, getting a spot start, coming up four for five. And then, you know, to give a guy a rest, stuff like that. Maybe maybe you have to accept that. And, you know, I think that's part of the game, too. And it takes a lot of integrity and a lot of class to be able to do that. Um, but, you know, hey, Pujols earned the right to do pretty much what he wants to do and if there's disagreement there with the front office and and, and the players or the, you know the manager then then you know you have to respect that too so i bet he ends up back with the cardinals you know i think that's he's a tough one because they got they got goldschmidt there so yeah it's a tough one. it depends He'll go there on how he wants to go out right like if, yeah i think everything mike said's right on point like i i could have said anything better myself i i think for for him right realistically like he should have looked at the season and said, okay, here's what we have. Here's what could happen. And I think in, in the same regard, I think the organization should have said, Hey, Albert, you know, here's kind of the situation. Let's, let's really think about what we want to do here. Um, and realistically, I mean, could have phantom DL them could have, you know, a lot of different things should have happened. I'm sure Albert wouldn't have, have accepted that as a kind of a way to go about it. But I, I just hate that he, let's put it this way. I hate that this is, going to be like the end of Albert Pujols' career in one way or another, whether he signs a one-day contract or a 10-day contract or whatever he signs, it stinks. Like, it just stinks. So I think there should have been 
more clarity on both ends. And I mean, to Mike's point, like, you know, you don't like, you got to look at yourself in the mirror at some point. Like I think Albert would be the first one to tell you his last three years haven't been very good um, comparatively, you know, to who he normally was and, and, and what Albert Poole stood for. So I don't know. It, it's just a tough situation and from whatever way you slice it. I just hate that it, this is the way it ended up. Yeah, it's, 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 it's sad. I don't think it's good for the game. Um, and, uh, you know, the guy's a first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, he's incredibly dominant and has, you know, changed the game in so many ways. And, and uh, you know, I, 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 again, I just, I met him at the, the home run derby, you know, when Bobby was there and he was just the most humble, nice guy, you know, I've ever, you know, one of the most humble, nice guys I've ever talked to. And, and he's sitting there with his family and I'm looking at this is one of the greatest hitters of all time, man, two feet away from me. And now, so I feel bad that it's happened to him. Man, he was yeah. such a dominant, dominant force. And him and Manny Ramirez, you know, similar, you know, cut out of the same cloth. Yeah. So it's sad to see this. I hope he, you know, I hope he doesn't go to like a, you know, an American League team that's, you know, like the Orioles that are trying to rebuild and DH yeah. there. And, you know, yeah. it's just a play, you know. He needs to go help a team win. That's what he needs to do. And whatever he has to do to help a team win, that's what he's got to do. And Agreed. It's, it's just sad. I wish he was hitting 300 with 30 and 100 again. Prime, that would be awesome. To prime see. pool holes. Yeah. This is my bat. This, you mentioned the home run derby. There he it is. It for me. He signed a bat for me. Look at that. Look at that. Wow. Amazing. Look at that. Did that. you get your Chris Bryant bat signed, Bobby? No, I didn't get a Chris Bryant. What an idiot. You're an idiot. You I should have. Yeah. I'll get you one somehow. You should have. Uh, I got a connection. We know a guy that knows the <laughs> guy. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into the home run derby <laughs> later. Um, don't be ashamed. Be afraid to ask it. I'll forget. I'm getting old, man. I, need yeah, I, I hate asking for stuff like that. It's got, it. Yeah, I, I'll do it for him. Like it always has to be like I'll ask for. I'm like, hey, this guy needs this thing for. You know. Yeah, I'll get you both one if you want one. Maddox didn't want his bad after he pranked him. He was kidding, I guess. <laughs> Remember when he pranked him at that day? Red Bull prank. Sound man's yeah. got a good curve on there. Still want yes. my bat? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's Greg, though. I played golf with him a few times. He's got the driest humor. Oh, my God. The guy's – he's hilarious. <laughs> I've heard some stories that of things that he's done. He's ruthless. Totally. Yeah, he's ruthless. He doesn't smile a whole lot. <laughs> but I have to be a prankster that doesn't smile or laugh because then people get really angry. Somehow. He more snivels and snickers than he does smile. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was kidding around with him once. I said, hey – Greg, you need to grow a personality. <laughs> he, he kind of, he goes, oh, oh well. You know. That's funny. All right, let's start getting into some hitting topics. We've got three back-to-back-to-back here. Um, first one, just league-wide hitting is down in 2021, which is interesting because Chris has had somewhat of a resurgence or gotten back to form. Uh, four hitters so far, depending on how you count no hitters. I think it's – is it four, maybe five with the seven four, anymore, yeah. whatever. Um, let's just go thoughts on just hitting right now. I got some stats, 234 league-wide batting average, 703 OPS. Um, I actually looked at batting average by age. Kids under the age of 25 are hitting 232, 26 to 30, 232, 31 to 35-year-olds hitting 238. Hitters age 36 and over are hitting 255. How about that? Old guys Whoa. producing. Isn't that funny? Um and then I pulled up some other stats looking at like batted balls, um, batting ground ball, batting average is down from 245 to 225. 
from 2007 to now. So it's harder to get hits on the ground. Um, line drive, this one scared me. Line drive batting average in 2007 was 734. This year so far, it's 639. So line drives. Yeah, I, I, it's, I don't it's, know how much yeah. that's a shift. Yeah, the shift, they're, they're just in better positions. So, I mean, the pitching is a lot better. Is um, it? Okay, go ahead. Go is ahead. It? I'm asking, is it? I think so. I think it is. So I was talking to so Scott Lacey, who does the pitching here. I want to pull the numbers on this. I don't know where to pull the numbers. I asked him what percentage of pitchers are now throwing the correct fastball. So there used Agreed. to be tons. There used to be tons of guys that should have been throwing two seamers that were throwing four seamers. I can agree with that. Four seamers that should have been throwing sinkers. I'll agree with that. I think pitchers are much have a much higher awareness of what they should be doing and how to execute against certain profile hitters. Right. Yep. You know, yes. Our bullpens predominantly like you're just running out a never ending string of dudes that are 95 plus. Right. So you go to the bullpen and you look up and it's like 95 plus coming out of the bullpen. So, and then once they need to replace one, they just go Cubs. (laughs) (laughs) So like the point is, I think by and large, I would say pitchers are, are getting better at doing what they should be doing. Um, now, to the point of the fact that, like, three of these five no-hitters or four of these five no-hitters have been – four have been thrown by lefties, three, and I'll count Bumgarner's too, by, like, sub-93 mile-an-hour average fastball lefties. Like, Bumgarner and and uh, and Wade Miley are both, like, hovering around 90. Like, the, the unwillingness to hit against a shift – like, again, the, and, and this speaks volumes to the adjustments that Chris has made. I've been paying attention. I obviously saw the Verducci article, which I'm so, so excited about because – like, you have to make adjustments as a hitter to what the pitchers are doing. Chris Bryant, who's one of the best hitters in the game of baseball, and we're lucky to have his dad here be talking with us, is making adjustments based on what the pitchers are doing. So I think hitters are getting worse, and pitchers are probably getting a little better, or they're understanding how to pitch better. We have to do a better job of making adjustments, hitters. We have to take our knocks to the right side, period. I'm done. Sweet. I got a different take, okay? I think there's a combination – and it's lethal, okay, for hitters. I think Bobby knows where I'm going to go with this. The umpires have never been worse in the game, period. Now, you know, I, I watch the game. I watch it very different than most people watch it, okay, because I'm hinging on That's the whole thing that I am focused on, every single pitch, where it is, up in, down and away, what it is. These guys missed 35,000 calls in one season pitches that were out of the strike zone called strikes this is gonna get controversial are we going automated strike zone right now i want it so bad oh okay. boy i want the uh, Chris I want, like, hates the idea of you <laughs> i don't hate no. it let's clarify no, no, this is good. keep He's going old school guy. you're Finish an old school thought. guy okay and, and i get it you know but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, there's never been a perfect game pitched in the history of the game because the umpires are imperfect, period. You can't call it a perfect game because the umpires are imperfect. You need to be perfect, okay? Did you see no this stat the other day? Did you mm-hmm. see this stat the other day? One guy got every call but one, right, according to the box. He, he was the closest and, and, ever to having a perfect game behind the dish. That's awesome. Okay, I, but that, that's the average, the best umpire. Misses thirteen percent of all calls. That's 
that's 26 of, you know, if you throw 200 pitches in a game. And it's not equal. It's not equal. The problem is umpires don't have to answer to anyone. They have zero accountability, right? As soon as you get past that threshold of being like one of the up and down guys and you get tenured, like Joe West hasn't had to think about his strike zone since 1992, probably. Angel Hernandez. Exactly. (laughs) And like, so these guys, like the, the ability to just like black out and not care how you call a game, like that's pretty much like Angel Hernandez to me just like literally blacks out during games because I've seen Angel be good for six innings and then like in the seventh, he just space cadets and like forgets what he's doing. Now, the issue lies with the accountability with the umpires. Now, to me, the problem with the automated strike zone, and Bobby and I have talked about this a lot, is the fact that like at what point did that box become the strike zone, right? Like I, I like I know in the rule book, it's all, but it's always been this like arbitrary thing where I sit there and I go, okay, well, like that box could move a little bit based on a given guy. Like now, if he's giving him a ball off the off the outside corner, like you can't give him that that black inside right so like i always like the idea of okay maybe the strike zone's over here today but it's going to be relatively the same size and guys having the ability to earn pitches the same way i think hitters should right like when hitters establish that they don't swing at balls like i don't think that the borderline pitch should go against them in a lot of ways so it's a really sensitive topic and i'm not being i'm not being like more passive now i I think it's i think it's hard because the problem I have is when pitchers miss spots really bad, I get really angry when a pitcher throws a backup breaking ball when he's trying to get it out to the outside corner and the umpire feels compelled to call that, that, that backup slider on the up and inside corner because, like, the guy reached back. Is that really a strike? I... I love the semantics, okay? But I look at it like this, okay? If you're calling a ball two inches out of the strike zone, a strike, then why can't a batted ball two inches foul be fair? Okay. Okay. So look, I I mean, there's got to be some absolutes in the game. And and I think the game is absolute. You are, it's either a strike or it's not, not according to whose strike zone it is. There's one strike zone, not the umpire's strike zone. It's baseball's strike zone. It's defined by just below the, it used to be defined back when Ted Williams was playing as one ball above the waist to one ball below the knee. Now it's one ball below the letters to one ball below the knee, Ted Williams said, if you expand the strike zone by two inches all around, that's 35% that you've made that strike zone bigger, a full third bigger. And he says, if you give major league pitchers that much of an advantage, they'll murder you. Okay. Period. That was back in the day before. That was before they threw 98. And so, you know, if you, I mean, Chris, you've, you've seen this up close, okay? You're going to tell me Joe West can see a Jacob DeGrom 91-mile-an-hour slider right at the last minute when it kind of disappears, okay? He a big league. He can't see it, okay? They can't see it. We need, I will give I, Joe West credit for messing up a call for me one time, though. Like, <laughs> right down the middle, he went, ball. I was like, hey, Joe, out of bed. We're getting it right now. But Yeah, and who pitched it? John Lackey, and he went nuclear, right? He probably had a stroke <laughs> out there. <laughs> Mike, you and I need to talk way more. I think we would have conversations that would never end. This is no, and like you, honestly, you've made you've made points just now that I'd never heard anybody else say that. Like the the ball being two inches foul, I never really thought about it that way. Now, what I will say is, obviously, there's lines that have been painted in the ground for years. The the issue with the strike zone to me is like I just don't because I'm a hitter, right? So when I talk about like the earning stuff, I don't want it to get to the point 
where dudes can throw pitches and catchers can go like this and have it be a strike. Like I hate that. I hate when a catcher's set up out here and he goes like this and reaches mm. back to the other side and he gets that call. I hate it. Like yeah. I think Chris would probably say the same thing. I would imagine like, Oh, he's set up away. I'm looking away. I know he's trying to throw that out there and he throws it back up and he gets it. I'm like, yeah. now hitting becomes more challenging. I think. Well, so you're I'm saying that, that, you know, the, the art of framing, pitch framing, it, you know, to deceive the umpire. I was like, when's deception a good thing? <laughs> I agree. Only when you deceive the umpire. I just, you know, I just, man, I would just rather have it absolute. Yeah, and it, like, call it an umpire assist, okay, so that they don't get the ego So I don't know if you've ever heard my take on this. I think you go to, you leave it the way it is, right? Umpires can call their own thing. But instead of going full automated, you give each hitter in the lineup two challenges per game, right? Or one, maybe it's one and they get an opportunity to challenge again. So, like, what you do is you say, you don't like the call. You turn around and say, I want to challenge. The umpire gets, you know, says challenge. Beep or no beep in his ear. Cool. It was in the box. Cool. It was out of the box. If you if you mess up, you lose your challenge. Because that way, at a minimum, we're, I don't know, it could bring some more excitement. It would have to be a fast process because you wouldn't want to mess up the rhythm. Yeah, you could do it in real time. My feelings are if you can read the date on a dime from 110,000 feet up, okay, in space from a satellite, okay, the date on a dime on the ground from 110,000 feet, that's 6,000 feet into space, okay, you can come up. The electronic strike zone is going to be a piece of cake. Hey, and that satellite's moving 17,000 miles an hour. Okay, and it can read the face of a dime and the date. Okay, even if it's a dirty one, there's no way that anybody's going to tell me that they can't incorporate an electronic strike zone. Okay, the only reason they're doing it is because their egos are going to get bruised. And you got the MLB umpires union, it seems to be stronger than anybody, it's stronger than the players' union. And they work for the commissioner's offices, who works for the owners. And you want the ball put in play, hitters have to hit strikes. The, the, you know, this is why everything's up. Everything's up, you know, I except think, the, good, I think the good numbers. I think the, they should go back to the old one ball above the belt, by the way, because the top of the strike zone is now – hitters get so exposed up there. Well, that's what happened with CRISPR alone for almost two years now. We had to come up with a plan to 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 flatten out his swing with, to have the right amount of vertical angle in the bat without, you know, chopping down and, you know, and hitting ground balls. He's hitting too many ground balls this year uh, compared to his past. So imagine if he was elevating the ball a little bit better. That instead of hitting 310, he'd be hitting 350. And, and, uh, but you know, we learned how to handle some of those uh, high fastballs, and it wasn't really a hard change at all. You look at pool holes and how he kept his hands high through the zone, we, you know, and how we controlled the strike zone from the top down instead of entering the strike zone, the height of the strike zone, you know, it belts high, and then the hands are below the ball, and there's no way you catch up at that point because it's just too hard. So, so it's, uh, well, you know, let's get let's get into that a little bit. I want to know. I'm I'm curious about the the dynamic of the hitter recognizing the adjustment needs to be made because a player at his caliber, he's rookie of the year, MVP, like he's good, right? He's had success. Well, good is an understatement. Let's clarify. Well, I mean, it, <laughs> he's played at the highest level of the game. He was, I mean, MVP of the league. Like you're the best player he's in the league. What I like to refer to as a dude. Let's clarify that. Okay, yes. let's just make that clear. I don't say so that about many people, just FYI. I'm not saying it because you're on the call. Well, I appreciate that. So to go Here. from – And you kind of earned it too. Making, making a change from something that's worked for so long is risky. Like like how how did that happen? How did it get to the point that you guys 
determine like, all right, now it's time to make a change because you get like a kid that is a good high school player and he goes to college and he fails and he's reluctant to make changes. Like where, where's the threshold to make the choice? Like, yeah, now it's time to make an adjustment. Well, obviously the numbers dictate that. And uh, so the way we did it, I mean, you, you, you know, Jack Nicholas used to use a lot of visual techniques. You know, you would envision his shots shaping down the fairway. He had to hit a left to right when he had to right. Well, we envisioned the, you know, the ball path coming in. Where is it? Looked at it up in the strike zone and then tried to, you know, we put it on a tee and then tried to match the, the, the bat path with that ball path. You looked at the Ted Williams thing where pitches at the top of the strike zone come down at approximately four degrees. Okay. What's that? That's a number. Well, what we try to do is shape the swing, you know, to have uh, the bat come up four degrees to the ball, not down, not level, but precisely what does that swing look and feel like? And then get after it 200 times, hit that pitch in the strike zone up and in 200 times, see what it feels like. What he was really developing was what that first move, what his trigger was to that. Okay. So, was it a downward move? It was a slightly downward move instead of dropping, you know, your elbow into that arm slot that everybody works from that 90, 90 position was to, before he got to that, what was the move before he got to that slot and then trying to figure it out and how to apply it, feel it. So, you know, and we had the hit track so we could see it happening. And he went, especially on the tee, you could really see it. And then we put it on the outside part of the plate at the same height and then just, over the middle of the plate and just keep doing that at that height. And he would naturally react to anything lower in the strike zone. It, and his instincts would take over at that point. So if it was a down low pitch and he wanted to hit it, he, the, the vertical angle would be increased just through instinct. Then we put it on the machine and try to replicate, you know, something with movement, you know, up, up high in the zone. And he understand what that trigger was. So that was a, really a small adjustment. You know, when you think about it, we're talking at inches, anywhere between an eighth of an inch to, to six inches of, of, you know, hand height coming, coming through the strike zone. I mean, that's a small amount, but, you know, pitchers can exploit that pretty easily, you know, by making the ball move a certain way. It's the same way as trying to lay off outside sliders that, that hang on the corner and break out of the zone. And what type of swing do you have to have to hit that ball? Well, that's, that seems to be a harder pitch to hit for me anyways, is that, that pitch that just nips the front of the plate at the knees on the outside corner. And so, so those were the things we were trying to connect the dots with what he was feeling, you know, in his hands to what he was seeing in the pitch. And it was just, just repetition from there. It, it really wasn't, uh, you know, I don't want to say it's as big a deal, you know, that it was a big deal. It's really not as big a deal as it, as it appears to be, but it, good hitters know how to make adjustments. As Chris was, you know, was talking about earlier and they're not afraid to try different things. And I worked with James Loney here in the off season. He had probably 25 or 30 hours with him. He was trying to create a home run stroke, you know, because he was, so I, you know, I measured him and showed him what his launch angle was and what his bat path was in slow motion. I said, you're going to get the ball in the air. You have to change the bat path, you know, and then he started connecting the dots. He never was taught that way, yeah. you know? So we started, now I know how to feel. I know what Ted Williams was talking about, you know, how to get that top hand under the bottom hand coming through and to keep the hands high so we could create some lift. And he was doing pretty good, but he, he, he never, I guess he never hooked up. 
Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned him. He was, I was supposed to play in uh, Sugarland with him a couple years ago. We ended up missing each other. I have like a million questions to ask you. Um, first thing, Chris has always hit a ton of homers. Like he hit a ton of homers in college, right? Like he, high school, yeah. like he hit a bunch of homers, I'm assuming too. Was there ever a time, and I, I love everything you're saying, by the way, it's incredible. Um, was there ever a time where he was a, like, did he ever think down? Did you guys ever talk about swing down, foot down early? Any like the traditional no. school stuff? Never, right? Yeah, so, like, no. I just Never. assumed that. I guess so. He always understood how to get. So for me, when Bobby started introducing this stuff to me, is when it all kind of clicked because I was the opposite till I was like 26. And then Bobby was just a pain in the ass enough to like get me to pay attention to like what it meant to get the barrel behind the ball. So I went from a guy that handled up and in plus velo to like all of a sudden now, like I understood down and away and like it opened up a whole new world. My numbers went like this because now I was hitting for better average because I was going the other way and I, I could leave to right center at that point. So, you know, like, was there ever a time for Chris where like, like when did he start becoming aware of the fact that like spin rate fastballs at the top of the zone were a challenge? Like how was it like a couple years ago? Was it early on? What, like when did that happen? I guess. Well, I think it evolved over the last two years. Um, 19, he had a pretty good year, um, but they started attacking him up in the zone. Um, and, you know, he was vulnerable up there. And um, I, I don't think he, he really had an approach for that pitch. He didn't, you know, his thought process wasn't, coherent to him so he would revert back to you know uh some basic stuff you know just trying to stay relaxed trying to hit it through the middle keeping it really simple you know but what he needed to do was find something more specific and uh and i think you know it's not like guess hitting or anything or anticipation or anything like that i, I think he really knew that he had to make a mechanical adjustment and and uh and he we identified that about a year and a half ago and Last year is a throwaway year for him. He was freaking hurt, man. Yeah. And uh, 19, he was hurt too, but not so much where it affected his play. And 18, he got his shoulder. I mean, from, you know, like beginning of June, I mean, he shouldn't he shouldn't have played until September. But he tried to play in June. He tried to play in July. He kept trying to come back. I'm not sure if he re-aggravated it, but he couldn't swing the way he wanted to swing. So he, he never was able to develop you know, and implement any changes. He was just trying to play through pain. You're just, so, you're just trying to survive. Yeah, you're just trying, yes, to survive. trying to survive. So in 19, that's when the realization came that we had to make some adjustments. And, um, and you know, we did it in the offseason. I mean, I wasn't pushing him, or, you know, really hard. I just introduced him to these things. And he's, you know, you know, it's not that he was reluctant. He was absorbing it slowly. It's like you're chewing your food, you know. Enjoy it. Yeah. You know, take some time with it. You know, so, so he would digest all this information and then he just started to figure it out himself he understood the high hand path he understood the move the one move that he had to make to get there so that he would be in the slot early not getting the foot down actually starting to swing at the same time his foot was coming forward you know and that was big poppy in his later years trying to gain ground on the pitch you know since so he was trying to gain six inches you know maybe maybe nine and three baseballs that's what he was trying to gain out in front and you know, that's what's allowed Justin Turner to be good. Justin Turner is able to gain ground. He's in his 30s. You're talking about those older guys hitting for higher average. That's an experienced major league hitter right there. You've got to play this game a long time to get good at it. And the thing that really sucks is the better that you get at this game, the harder the game gets. <laughs> it, it is, it's not right. It's not fair. You know, it's the better you get, the harder it gets. Think about that for a minute. 
Yeah. There's always somebody, you're always pushing somebody to be better than you. You're always pushing the pitchers to be better than you. It's a constant battle. It's a, you're under, like I said, you're under assault in that bat. The pitchers are assaulting you every moment that you're in that batter's back. And they, they are relentless. And that it's the mental toughness thing too, to be able to handle all the adversity and the failure. Now I know Bobby likes you so much. He always says good things about you. I got, listen, you and I need to start Be real quiet. I just get to sit around and listen. You and I need to start talking more. You know, my favorite thing you said, first of all, my favorite thing you said. That was all, that whole thing was just Unbelievable. Like A plus. (laughs) My favorite thing you said in that was, so like we were talking early in that, in, in, in what you just said, you said he would go back to like basic approach because he didn't have an approach for that ball. So like I talk about that all the time with guys. It's like, you have to build a database of information, right? Like you're as a hitter, you're building a database. Like this is how up and in works with guys that that have this profile. This is how down away with this profile. And if you have one of those things that like you don't have a database for, you go, uh Oh, like, and Uh try to go back to like simple basic stuff. Like trust your hands, shoot the other way, stay on top, stay relaxed, whatever. But you have no, like you don't have anything that you trust yet. So I tell people all like the college kids all the time and like young minor leaguers, I'm like, you have to use your cage work. And it, so I think this is what you just kind of said about what Chris did this winter is you're using your cage work to build something that will work in the game. You're not using your cage work to just go feel good about yourself. Like, you're not just going in there to taste yourself. Like, what are we doing? Like I watched so many hitters come in T right down the middle flips right down the middle BP right down the middle. Peace out. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. Like, these guys are getting better on me. They'll move the T on me, and I'll be like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, that uh, one was hard to hit. Oh, really? Okay. I'll, I'll file that for when I play against you. Now, you know what Ted Williams used to say? The most important thing in hitting is thinking. Okay? It, proper thinking. And all my life, I always said, don't think. See it, hit it. You know, I hear Bill Madlock, you know, four-time batting champ. Just see it, hit it. I say, Bill, it doesn't work that way. I'm, you know, <laughs> I love yeah. Bill, too. I mean, we, we, we never got in any fights. I used to but I used to argue with him. I'd say, you know, Bill, I says, you did not hit the way you teach. And he looked at me, what are you talking about? Yeah. I said, I took a step back. He says, Bill, listen to me. I says, you're a four-time batting champ, okay? To me, that's you belong in the Hall of Fame. Do you think that if I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, that I would challenge a four-time NL batting champion with 356? I said, do you think I would say something like that? I'm saying it out of respect that you not, you don't, you know, it's okay though. It's okay. Those that can't do teach and those that can't teach, teach gym. <laughs> I was, you know, so I, I stole that from school of rock, by the way. But, That's you know, funny. Uh, I'm going to use that so, with my dad. I'm going to tell my dad, those that can't teach, teach gym. Cause that, yeah. I mean, if you're the health and phys ed teacher. So no but wonder, so, no so. wonder why I had so much trouble. The one thing my dad did do is he helped me to a really high standard boy. Cause as a pitcher, he was a really good pitcher. So, you know, his first year when he pitched in Italy, he went like 12 and one and struck, he had like two, uh, he struck out like 14 guys per nine innings. So he's like, yeah, baseball is easy. And like, you know, <laughs> I'd go over six. He'd be like, what are you doing? It's like, how yeah, did you right. not get two hits? So I always had this bug in my mind about him 300, but to your point, I, that's, it's awesome. I think like, I, it's incredible. You're, you're, I always used to say this to people. My, my brain is my best tool by hundred percent. You take oh, my brain away, I'm screwed. And when I started really being able to process all that stuff, and there are a lot of guys that inherently are able to do stuff without their mind, to your, to your point about, about talent. Bill. Yeah. yeah. I, but I, I really, I, I'm hard pressed to believe that 
the best hitters in the world don't have something going on up here, whether it's intelligence, baseball IQ, whatever you want to call it, awareness. I think it's more than anything, it's awareness. Oh, by far. That's the word. Yeah, you have to. Awareness allows you to create adjustability, right? Like being aware, like being acutely aware of yourself. So Yeah, I always tell Chris, you need to get into the batter's box in a heightened state of awareness, okay? Almost like you're on the edge of a knife, your tunnel vision, you know, where if somebody whispered, you would jump out of your skin. Okay, that's how aware you got to be, you know, and, uh, you know, Chris is, uh, you know, he's a funny, he's funny, our relationship is kind of funny, because I try not to go overboard with my passion with him, I try to talk slower with him, you know, so, but there's times I just, you know, I get out of my element, and it kind of annoys him a little bit, and he stops listening to me, and, you know, I remember one time when he gave me resistance when he was younger, you know, and I said, oh, okay. I looked at him. I said, okay, Chris. And I said, do you want me to teach you how to strike out? Because I could be really good at that. I'm sure I could teach you how to strike out. It'd be very, very easy. I said, uh, you know, he never wrote books on how to fail. He only wrote books on how to succeed. And he goes, no, I don't want you to do that. And I said, good. Because you know what? What I really want you to do is what? I said, I want you to hit a home run every single time you're at the plate. Okay. Because if you did that, there wouldn't be enough money on the planet to pay you for what you're capable of doing. That's like a pitcher striking everybody out that he faces. And he kind of, well, that's impossible. I said, okay, but we can think like that. And that's what I told him. He says, we can think like that. Not that you're trying to swing out your butt and hit the ball 500 feet every time, but we can think like that to hit the ball hard. You know, that's why Mm -hmm. you make stuff relatable. I think that's why you're able to cross that threshold of father, son. And, And I'm sure there's like a little bit of like, Shut up, dad. Like, you're still dad. You know what I mean? There always like, is. <laughs> I, I, no, and I, I say this to people all the time. Like, you have to make you have to make hitting relatable. The story you just told is relatable. Like, yeah, I want you to hit a homer every time. Like, if my dad had prefaced a sentence by, like, why would you like why you roll over to short four times? Like, if he had just said, like, Chris, I want you to hit a homer every time you go off the bat, why would you roll over four times? Like, I'd be like, oh, you want me to hit a homer every time? I thought he was, like, trying to get <laughs> mad at me for a long time and just – I remember one time I he got called out on a pitch. It was probably it had to be a foot outside, and he came back. He's nine years old, and he goes and I go, "Did you follow? Did you could you follow that one off? You get a piece of it." And he looked. He's pissed. Just Dad, it was a ball. And I went, "Okay, okay, you got this. You got this." He got up next time. First pitch he threw him. He just smashed it over the. This was literally. He was nine years old playing in the majors. Just tomahawked one over the fence. I said, "Well, I was a little anger in that one, you know." <laughs> like that's when I knew he was like, there was something going on there. That sure, sure. you know, there was the competitiveness was huge at that point. But that's you, still there? you can go. Yeah. Home. Yeah. No, I'm just listening right now. I do. I have a question, a little more, uh, a little more granular, I guess. Um, how much? It's more about hitting in game, like at the big league level. How much? has the adjustments he made he's got like routines that i'm sure he goes through does he vary his routine based on the starting pitcher that night like do you guys talk about awesome. all right you're facing this guy tonight what are you thinking about what are you trying to feel well that's awesome because the word routine we change his on deck routine a little bit to you know act more like pedroia and braun and jeter mm-hmm. you know and keeping his hands up around his neck you know swinging the bat around his neck here he just gets, so he feels that but but um you know, all the in-game prep, scouting reports, all that, you know, he's good at that. Yeah, he, he will change his thinking accordingly. You know, if Morton's on the mound, a curveball pitcher, or yesterday Anderson, a change-up guy, he's going to change, you know, what 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 he's, uh, you know, in, in order to adjust the pitcher. And it was funny because I told him, I said, 
I said, listen, you go to Anderson, he's going to throw you change-ups away. He's not going to try to get you to swing out of the zone. Think through the middle a little bit more. That's all you got to do. Just think through the middle. What does he do? He freaking blasts one off the fence, left center field, you know, instead of pulling it, hooking it down the line. So he's been, and then he hit a single the other day through the middle. So I got him back through the middle. And I think he's starting to find his, you know, I think he's going to go off again pretty soon and, you know, have a nice little run. And, and then, you know, and I says, and in between those, you know, those, uh, those uh, two for 11s, uh, four for 14s where you hit 280, right? And, and you grind out, grind out a hit. You know, I'm going to grind doing. out a knock. Yeah, grind out a knock. Just battle it, battle it. Go the other way. Poke one the other way. Take a pitch off the plate with two strikes and just poke it over, you know, to the right side. Find a way to get on. We does that yesterday. It's a shot down the right field line, and that, that guy Stokes, he makes a nice sliding grab off. And it would have been an inside the park home run if it got by him. Yep. You know, so I'm like, so he's thinking. And that's, that's the point. You know, the number one most important thing hitting is thinking. You know, you said 90% of the game's mental, the other half physical. So why don't we teach the kids how to think properly first? You know? I, you know, it's funny. I asked a Harvard guy the other day. I said, uh, Har- this is Harvard University, like the university. I said, uh, I was like, hey, how much time a week you spend? Uh, he's a pitcher. I was like, how much time a week you spend in the weight room? He's like, ah, probably like 10 hours, 12 hours. I'm like, all right, cool. How much time you spend throwing bullpens or like working on throwing? He's like, Probably another 12, 15, 20 hours. So how much time a week you spend on like working through counts, thinking about how you're going to pitch a guy, like, you know, running through sequences. He's like, what do you mean? Like no hours, zero, like in the off season. So like, we're not using our brains enough. We're not thinking enough about how to train to be better at what we're trying to actually accomplish. Yeah. People need to train their brains more is the point. Like we just, like, no, the, the reason why Bobby and I are so passionate about what we're trying to build right now is because we, and we were part of the swing revolution, right? Like I, I would say I was probably like one of the first public guinea pigs of the swing revolution, but I learned how to hit for 27 years before that. Like right. now guys think that they can just build a swing mm-hmm. and that they're going to be good at hitting. And I'm like, dude, it's not binary. It's not like you, you build a swing and you're good at hitting. Like, the swing is just allowing you to have a little bit more room for error than you would have if you had a garbage swing, but like, you got to learn how to hit. You have to learn how to hit, build a database of information, understand what happens on this pitch, what happens on that pitch. When this guy's throwing, what do I do when I'm feeling good? What do I do when I'm feeling bad? And to your point, the way you hit 330 and 340 and 350 is you figure out how to shorten those windows of when you stink. Like, right. Because you just got to figure out how to be good when you're bad. How good can you be when you're bad, right? Like, yeah, how do that's you like golf? <laughs> yeah, how do you take two for thirty and turn it into four for twenty-five or like whatever? You know what I mean? Right, like, right. Well, the year the year I hit three twenty, I didn't I didn't have back to back. I had back to back offers three times the whole year, three times. That's which, incredible, right there. And like, at that I, level, I felt great about my approach. I felt great about my mechanics. And like, it was the first time I felt like I was at home in the big leagues in Toronto. Like they allowed me to be myself hitting coaches didn't jump down my throat. It was awesome. So like I was able to just go be myself and like, you know, the battle of attrition, like how do I just figure out how to have a competitive AB right here, put a ball in play, take my walk when I can get it. And then I looked up at the end of the year and I hit 321. And I said, Oh, that was pretty good. That's incredible. You know, I read, you know, they asked me a question on, um, on the score the other day about uh, how the Cubs have uh, an army of hitting instructors and, you know, this and that, there's, you know, 
they have their ways of doing things. He says, did you, you know, have, has there ever been any like conflicts, you know, that, that were created by Chris's relationship with you? I said, listen, I said, I said, Chris is the guy swinging the bat. Okay. I think if you, you kind of remember that, that he's the one, okay. He's his own hitting instructor. He gathers the information and he uses everybody as a soundboard. I says, there's no egos or anything like that. Anthony Iapochi, Termel Sledge came out to my cage to see what we were working on in the off season. And, and I took that as the ultimate sign of respect for them to show up at the cage and want to know what dad was, was teaching his kid. And the, and the thing that I told them, I said, listen, I'm not here to step on your toes, man. Right. You know, I'm not, that is the least okay i said we have the same goal in mind here we're on you know in a, in a sense we're on the same team except you're getting paid and i'm not you know send him an invoice send him an invoice yeah i know but he said and, that, and that's fine you know with me i said i'd do this for free you know you know for my son i mean I've, i'll send him an invoice later <laughs> but uh so so we just, i said look you know it's not about who knows what and who knows more Look, it's, it's all about how you communicate the message and how you articulate what you value. And if you can articulate what you value, these guys can do wonders with it. Okay. And, and I looked at him, I said, and, and listen to me, I'm not going to take any credit for this. Okay. Because I'm not going to take any blame either. So if that's what governs me as a hitting guy. I said, you need to be inspired as a hitter. To, if, that you have a belief level in what you're learning is going to work. And then it's up to you to go out and execute. And if you do, it's all you. Congratulations, man. Chris called Bellow hit 320 in the big leagues. He did that. That's great. Bobby helped him along the way. But, you know, Chris wants to give all the credit to me. And if you want to give credit to Bobby for helping, if you're the only one that can do that. And, and that's the way I look at things. And that keeps you humble, you know. The funny I'm thing past is, all that ego shit. <laughs> you know, you're, you and I think very similar because me, the player, I would be the first one to give credit to Bobby and to Rich Gedman, who are my like two hitting guys, and I'll take hey, all the blame. I know Rich. I, yeah, and Rich gets a met right. Like he was my he was my hitting guy. Bobby was my swing guy. That's the way I describe it, right? <laughs> and like I'll be the first one to take blame for myself and give them credit because they were able to instill stuff in me that I wouldn't have learned without them. And I think to your point, like. The, the same way if one of my college guys starts to struggle like i feel inherently responsible but i'm never going to take credit for their success because they're the ones that ha they have to do it. and i just think that's the kind it doesn't surprise me that that's the kind of person you are because i know your son a little bit and see it in him so well yeah you know you, you, try, you try to get better as a person as i mean i'm 62 years old now man you know i've had to learn a lot of hard lessons believe me you know as a player i had all the talent in the world but i didn't have a mentor you know, I didn't have any mentor. I mean, I got with Ted Williams finally. And then I was like, my eyes were open big time. And, and I hit four something in spring training and I got cut. You know, I'm like, I thought you earned a spot. This so I'm trying to get on, you know, trying to earn a spot on the double A team at that time. And I don't, you know, it's, this is just a lot of, a lot of things back in the eighties. There was a lot of drama, but we got out of it. And, uh, and I just said, look, my motivation when I had kids was, I wanted to figure out why I wasn't the best player on the field because I had the most talent. So, you know, that was my motivation. And then I figured it out. And then I just passed it on to, you know, to both my kids. My older boy was a pretty good ball player, too. And he's in the medical field now. So I had to face him, you know. I faced him in the Atlantic League a couple years ago. I think he struck me out. Who? Your Chris's brother, right? Chris's brother. Oh, no, no. Was it? No, no. Nick didn't play. He didn't play pro ball. 
or Who's, independent it was ball. Somebody's brother then. It was a Bryant, I think. <laughs> yeah. I guess somebody's I son. I was wrong, Bobby. Look, I said it. There we go. Bobby always said something I never wrong. said wrong. I was wrong. 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 See, I was wrong. I can't say yeah. I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, the only time I was wrong is when I thought I was wrong. That's your answer, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know who it was? It was Harper's brother. Harper's got a brother. So oh, yeah. Know. Brian Harper. Yeah. yeah big, that's big why I was an idiot. My bad. Yep. Well, there you go. I mean, that's understandable. It's the Vegas connection, right? Yep. 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 Nick, Nick, uh, my older boy, actually got a game winning hit off Brian Harper in All high right. school. In a, we had a three that we broke their 25 game winning streak. And Chris, Nick hit a double to the gap to drive in. Uh, Chris scored from first on that. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. This is how I know I'm getting old, by the way, that I forget stuff and I mess it yeah. up. Yeah, This is a bad sign. It's a bad sign that I'm messing up. Prevagen. Take Prevagen. <laughs> Golly. Bobby just left the conversation. Like, yeah. I think he let us do the rest of the show. Well, um, you got any more topics? I got another podcast to do in a couple yeah. minutes here. I think. Yeah, my computer's about to die for no reason. Scrambling. Well. I mean, I think we can call it a wrap. We got an hour and 10 minutes worth of stuff. Yeah, that was fun, man. I will we'll do this. You're again. awesome. We'll pick, he pick won live. He stuff. said you're great. No, I mean. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Last, I, got, I have one more question. If I lose you, then I lose you. My computer is just going to die. I got, I got uh, 10% still. Um, question. If you, if you had to go back to when Chris was 10 years old, so now that, we've, now that you've kind of been on both sides of the swing, I think – CC Chris Calabella and KB Chris Bryant approached the swing change from different angles because Chris Bryant was more under the ball. Chris used to be more on top. If you had to go back to when KB was ten, how would you change the way that you taught, or would you change the way that you taught? No, just been- I would. I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, I just I just got better at it and and more articulate at it and learned more about it. So so no, I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, Chris was an open stance guy feet close together like Evan Longoria when he got into college he spread out really wide and crouched down a little bit because he was six six and and he uh you know he he was able to get to the low and away slider a little bit better and that's you know that made him a great college hitter that's so, what, I, I he built his swing and I would say I I would have much rather been like grown up like KB than CC because like I was very limited to like pull side cut across everything. Like I couldn't yep. drive the ball the other way unless it was an accident where guys like our size, right? Like he, him and I are similar body types. Like that's what allowed him to do a ton of damage. Like he was, yeah. I mean, he leverage on homers. Right. So like yeah. that made enough noise for him to be KB first rounder and where Chris Calabello hit, you know, I hit 370 or whatever it was at, at a division two college, but I didn't get recruited by division one school, but because I was limited, I couldn't do the things that made, guys like us stand out where like he's hitting balls 450 feet when he's 16, 17 years old, I bet. And right. I, I, mine yep. were accidental pull side down line. So I went like, if I could go back in time, I would have learned like KB instead of like, yeah, I learned this stuff at 26 instead of, and so I hit it hard, hit it in the air, you know? Yeah. Like I wouldn't do anything the, different. I, that's the underlying philosophy right there. Yeah. You did. I, I would say you painted the perfect picture for him. And then like, obviously he took it, from there and, and learn how to just be accountable. Dude, I got so much blowback through Little League and club ball and high school. I get so much. It's still to this day of getting blowback from people in Vegas well, about the swing. They have no freaking clue. As, as Dustin Pedroia so eloquently said in the uh, in the roast of David Ortiz, I believe it was, he said, and somebody told Dustin Pedroia that he was really short, he goes, 
Yeah, he goes, I'm not that short when I stand on top of my wallet, though. <laughs> he can, Chris Bryant's already tall, but he'll, his head will go through the roof when he's standing on his wallet. How's that? Oh, yeah, that's awesome. I oh, love that's, it. He, this is awesome. I, I'm honored to have talked to you, probably more so than talking to your kid, especially because I, Patrick posted a thing of us. Like, I kind of tried to one-up him when he did that kick the ball off the tee thing and knock it up in there and hit it. I was like, this doesn't look that hard. So him and I should just have back-and-forth challenges of, like, T hitting tricks that we can do. That'd be fun. That would be cool. I, 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 you know, he resists anything I ask him to do, but if, if I asked him to do, do a podcast with you guys, three of us on there, he could roast me all he wants and make fun Perfect. of me. And, but you guys could have a blast. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. No, we'll set it up. I mean, just yeah. let us, I know he's a little bit busy. He's probably got some stuff going on. Somebody asked me the other day, they're like, Hey, so what did you do with your summers for the last like 20 years? I was like, really? Like, is that a question? Like, like, like what are you going to do this summer? I was like, I, I don't know. Like I, I've played 180 games a year for like the last. Yeah, right. So play golf. Exactly. Well, I'm trying to become a scratch golfer now. So. Yeah, I'm an eight. You know, I played with six from time to time, and you know, I, you know, I get to figure out the putt, and that's all. I can drive it and get it on the green. I get the short game. I put the up and down. I can't turn three into two consistently. So. Aim we'll, point. We'll be, get aim point. We'll be out there soon. Don't let him talk to you about a short game. All right. He's not the short game guy. I'm the short game guy here. Aim point uh, for putting. We'll be, out, we'll be out there soon to play some golf. How's that? Yeah, uh, that would be a kick, man. I'd enjoy it. So, all right, guys. I get a move Mike, on. thanks so much for, for joining us. Really yeah, appreciate coming, it. Mike. Appreciate it. You, you oh, Chris, I wish you the best and uh, send our. I will. You know, keep going, man. I will, man. We'll do it again. All right. All right. Sounds good. All right, brother. Bye bye. Later.